podcast ain't played nobody. I've been walking inside of a version of our own podcast for the last two days, Bill. Um, it, it's been terrifying. It's been a little surreal. It's maybe like the first Tron, uh, the better, the more superior Tron, or any other, maybe War Games. You remember that movie? I guess that doesn't have a surreal virtual reality element to it. But I leave Houston, Texas. By the way, still on the road. Um, I go home today after 15 days out. Um, I, I leave Houston, Texas after Big 12 Media Days. I go to New Orleans for the Sunbelt Media Days. Um, you yourself, is, you're in Chicago right now, is that right? That is correct. Okay, uh, we'll get to that in a second. Um, we can't help but talk about the Group of Five because I've been, <laughs> I've been living it. I went from, here's the deal, I went from the summit, Houston, Texas, University of Houston, talking to arguably the Group of Five school that's best positioned to make the jump to the Big 12. As after I witnessed in person, like like the Archduke being shot, another realign, re, realignment three, realignment four, Desert Storm realignment, I don't know, uh, happening in Dallas. Houston positioning itself, and then I go to the Sun Belt, Bill, and it was kind of depressing. It was, it was a great event. I'm going to filibuster here before I bring you in because I don't want to disparage the Sun Belt. And that's not what this podcast does. This podcast, no. we celebrate and we, we, we venerate, possibly not a word, uh, all, of, all of our mid-major brethren. But the conversation has gotten to a point where I sat with um, the Sun Belt Commissioner, Carl Benson, for, for 45 minutes, Bill. And at the end of the conversation, we talked about television revenue and we talked about school support and whether or not it's better to bring in Schools with established fan bases and in cultures of winning. So, in other words, like an Eastern Kentucky or a North Dakota State, or what happened with App and Georgia Southern. Or do you do you grow one overnight, like a Charlotte or a uh, or a Georgia State? But the bottom line, and the reason I lead off the show, Bill, I think Carl Benson's down with your plan. I think he might actually just want to. Now, he doesn't want to blow the whole thing up, obviously, because he like you know the Sun Belt pays him and stuff. You know, little little details like that. But I think we're inching closer to a giant Voltron alliance of Group of Five schools. So they're they're going to need your help, buddy. I'm I'm here. I'm ready. Um, and we've got you know AAC on deck for next week, so we can start talking to them too. We're so excited about going to the American Athletic Conference. Um, I don't have the air horn. I'm traveling right now. Um, I'm in the residential suburbs of Jackson, Mississippi, but. I would. I don't know if we. I don't think we're allowed to use the air horn anymore because the AAC is going to have a decidedly somber tone uh, in between its clam bakes and, and lobster and uh, people <laughs> people plying us with booze to talk about how great the conference is because they're going to get sacked. Um, I don't think there's any way around it. I've been working on realignment news. And by the way, I just like to point out for some of the snippier listeners of this podcast. Yes, I go from doing nothing to doing everything. Okay, or at least the illusion of doing something. Um, so I've been following realignment news. I've been on the phone with athletic directors. I swung through the Sun Belt mainly to meet some new coaches and talk to some athletic directors and SIDs. I've got a couple items coming up from the Sun Belt. But I, I don't know of a scenario, good or bad, even, even way offbeat, in which the AAC does not lose at least one, if not two, of its, of its really kind of anchor members right now to Big 12 expansion. So... Everyone starts asking me the question over beers and over coffee and just it's kind of funny because you and I 
Would we say wallow or dabble too much in the mid-major? Let's say wallow, okay? So, uh, this is pure dabbling right here. Wallow uh, expresses some sort of negativity. We do we not. Have, well, we have the scent upon us, the stink upon us. And so because of that, people will ask me, like, what are they going to do? I had a friend of mine who's also a source. He say, hey, like, what happens? Are they just, is everybody going to shift up again? Who does the AAC take? Which is something that we played around with last week. And I think the I think the overarching sentiment now, and the other thing that that Benson told me that I think is of interest to everybody, not just our little weird pocket of the college football sphere, is that he is actively lobbying Sunbelt schools to stop scheduling paycheck games. Yeah, he has. That's not really breaking news. He's been on that for a while, but he he's. I've got the number in my notes, which I sure don't have in front of me, but there the number is down again this year. Not by much, I think maybe by like one or two, but it's down enough to where that he feels like there's he can promote a trend, and he wants schools to stop taking uh, anything past one quote unquote paycheck game. And the logic makes sense. It's actually it's kind of funny, Bill. I could hear your words floating through the air. Where what is a what is one point two million dollars worth for that extra game for whatever school it is? I don't know. Let's just say. A good one, Arkansas State or Louisiana Lafayette or Georgia Southern to go to Auburn and Georgia Tech in one year, or go to Auburn or go to Alabama and Ole Miss in one year. You know, this year Georgia Southern, one of the best programs in the Sun Belt, plays Georgia Tech and Ole Miss. Um, but they need the money. It's because I think they make something close to three million dollars off of just those two weekends of football, which is a huge boon to them. By comparison, so everybody listening, they're like, "Well, what does three million dollars mean?" They make a little under, they claim, the Sun Belt claims to give them a little under a million dollars from all of their TV revenue in one year. I just left Houston, who is making about in the neighborhood of $3 million a year in the American Athletic Conference on TV revenue. The whole reason this Big 12 expansion is happening is because the Big 12 is terrified that they're only making $30 million a year per school in television revenue. That gulch is only going to get wider because the Big 12, remember, they're the ones that are behind the pack, right? So ACC announces the big digital initiative with ESPN, um, SEC, and Big 10. I've heard varying projections. I mean, I think you, I think in five years you'll be looking at $100 million per school. Ugh. I mean, the, the, the haves, haves, nots thing is just it's insane. I mean, it's... it's that, hurt, that hurts football so much, by the way, but I think I've been on that rant before. Well, it's just clearly... It's clearly two sports. I met Joe Moglia yesterday, the um, the former yeah. Ameritrade CEO, and he's now the head coach at um, at Coastal Carolina. Um, by the way, I didn't realize for those of you who follow follow college baseball, Coastal Carolina wins the College World Series in Omaha, where Moglia had lived for years and established TD Ameritrade inside TD Ameritrade Stadium. So he kind of made some jokes about like collusion or something like that. Um, he was laughing at it, and I, and. You know, I may use this podcast as a sounding board to see if you guys are not necessarily interested in a season with Coastal Carolina, but Moglia having a financial background of, of really the highest caliber because TD Ameritrade is one of the few companies that didn't take a hand out or go belly up during the recession in 07 and 08. He knows how to manage funds. He knows how to keep a financial structure intact. I mean, he laughs at these poor-mouthing athletic directors at the highest level saying, oh, you know, we only have $80 million, We only have $140 million. But everyone is now admitting there is no more lie, Bill, that 
we can compete with X, or we are on the same footing as Y. No, if you are Louisiana Lafayette or Arkansas State or Bowling Green, or, or there's no way in hell that you're going to deliver a football product. And I'm not just talking about on the field. I'm talking about the entire thing. Recruiting budget, marketing, stadium enhancement, all of it. There's no way in hell you're going to be able to compete with even, you know, the lower – even the University of Kentucky in football, even even Power Five programs with no real foothold, foothold or history of success. This isn't. Well, of course, you know you're not going to beat Ohio State or Texas or Oklahoma. I get that, but it's becoming such a gap now that we turn we turn to the minds of our industry, such as one robot, Bill Connolly, and we say, we say, save us. And Bill whispers down, no. I already tried to, or no, actually I think Bill would probably just be like, okay, cool. Yeah, no, I'd be, I'd be willing. No, I, you know, there's the, the saving grace here for smaller teams in terms of like, there will still be upsets. Let's put it that way. There will still be a lot of upsets and I would, I'd still be willing to say that like the, the higher ranked teams in the Mac and those conferences would still be able to, um, take down the, the lower end teams and other conferences simply because there are still only 11 guys on the field. Um, like all of the prep, all of the, the, the fancy workout rooms and the, and you know, the 38 offensive and defensive analysis, uh, analysts that these teams will now hire, uh, because you can't still make a profit, even though you're making a hundred million dollars in te- television revenue. Um, that, that there can still only be 11 guys on the field. And those 11 guys are going to be mostly aged between 18 and 21 years old. So they're going to be stupid. A lot of the time I say that as if, you know, four-year veteran of having been 18 to 21. Um, that's the one saving grace here is that college football still will have a pointy ball and 18-year-olds making a difference, and that's going to make for a decent amount of variance. But, no, I hate it. I, I, I hate this. Even though, you know, my my team, uh, you know, got the golden ticket. They're always going to be in the front when it comes to all this te- television revenue and whatnot because they hopped over to the SEC, and that's great. But I hate this because – you. And I know I've this is this is one of my programmed rants, and 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 so I'm, I've gotten pretty good at it. But if we're so worried about the future of football, if we're so worried about the you know war on football and all that, um, then one of our biggest focuses right now, or two of them, number one, making the game safer, obviously, uh, and I think they're sort of on their way towards that to some degree, and number two is making football available. Like if, you, if if the gap becomes bigger and bigger and, and um, the cost of fielding a competitive football team gets higher and higher and, and, and only like 60 to 70 schools are making that money, then th- that strangles away a lot of potential football opportunities. And so, you know, then I, then I, you know, this is my little liberal hat. I guess it's the week for this. But, I mean, this is where sharing the wealth would be very, very, very important for the long-term depth and, 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 and health of college football. It's gonna, I mean, it's still going to exist at the FBS level or FCS level and all that. But if you want it to be a healthy product where as many people as possible have the opportunity to play it, then, yeah, putting all the money into 70 uh, teams and, and, and kind of just choking and, and suffocating the other you know hundreds that are out there, it just makes less and less sense, and it drives me crazy. Well, let's walk this out then because let me put on my nihilist hat, um, which is the party that I'll always belong to, and say, nope. Um, but my even from a point of nihilism, I would tell you positive change can come for these programs only if they force the hand of those who have more. And in that regard, I think 
if you if you're these uh, Sunbelt and Mac programs who are sort of like the filler for the first two three weeks of everyone's right. schedule, do you demand just three million four million dollar paychecks, <laughs> or do you walk away entirely from the system? Because look, I've talked to athletic directors before. If you if left to their own devices, there were a lot of programs. Uh, Mississippi State's athletic director Scott Strickland told me this years ago when the mandate came down that they had to schedule the SEC had to schedule a plus one. Um, power five school if you if if all of those um, Benson called them peer conferences we you know we call them g5s if the g5s disappeared tomorrow like the, the scheduling model would be screwed yeah it would be absolutely screwed um it's it's all very interesting to me i mean i, I i'm curious i don't know how the sunbelt could do this or like the mac could do this without pissing off their brethren in fcs because they're i mean that's where they pull programs from they obviously have good relationships and they schedule fcs but going to the sec and saying because if you say it's going to be three million dollars to to beat troy um they're probably just going to go and schedule eastern kentucky out of the fcs for for you know eight hundred thousand or something like that um so i don't know how you force them to even the market out i'm not sure but i think eventually the charade is going to keep i mean the problem is i can't believe i'm saying this bill but like we we sit here and talk about ulm beating arkansas a couple years ago or i'm trying to think of the other various sunbelt upsets specifically in the last couple years georgia southern when they were still in fcs beating florida obviously and then you know app state and michigan all those years ago when they were fcs I think in a weird way that perception is probably hurting them because if it got more and more dire, if, if let's, I don't even know, if you, let me stall for a second while I pull up. Let's just, because I was there, let's pull up the Sunbelt's schedule for the fall, just, just the very beginning of it. So they all have to go and, and kind of get their asses kicked for a little while to make money. What if all of those games, this is my point, what if all of those games were just complete routes for the Power 5 schools? If if that happened enough over time, I think people would just get sick of it. Wouldn't you assume? Like, App State goes to Tennessee. South Alabama goes to Mississippi State. Boise, uh, that's, a, that's a hard one to count, but Boise goes to ULL, so we won't use that one. Uh, Troy <laughs> at Clemson. Um, Idaho at Washington. Uh, ULM, Oklahoma. You know, on and on and on. Miami at well, then there is Miami at App State, which actually I don't want that to go away. I think that's badass that Miami has to go to App State. But what if all of these games become completely boring waste of time? I don't know if even that would change anything. No, I mean it sure it it might. I don't know. It might be a start. Well, the reason these games exist is so the big schools can kick the ass to the small schools. The small schools get money. They get to recruit saying, hey, over the next four years, you come here, you're going to be able to play at Georgia. You're going to be able to play at Ole Miss, et cetera. That's what the small schools get. And the big schools get a chance to uh, not lose and uh, play their backups and um, you know send their fans home happy. Although, I mean, you you do that too much and the fans get bored, obviously. Yeah. Um, but that's why those games exist. That's why there are a couple of them on the schedule. The, the big schools get wins, and the and the small schools get money, and, and kind of a roundabout recruiting tie, and, and everybody goes home happy. Uh, it's what, what what would happen that would screw up the system even worse is if more of the small schools started winning, because then the you know the big schools would either stop scheduling them or, like you said, dip further down the line. Um, well, that's what and that's what happens when you get that late November weekend where the SEC, where everyone in the SEC is playing someone from the SoCon, you know. Right. 
Yeah, I don't know why anybody schedules North Dakota State. That is the stupidest move in the in in the country because if you're going to schedule one of those games, schedule a win. I think the North Dakota State thing snuck up on a lot of people, and because FCS contracts can be done pretty far in advance, because they ADs at small schools, um, and you know, I know they're they Indy, NDSU is a powerhouse for what they are, but like you're still trying to find that money. You want to have those guarantees locked up five, six years out, which is one of the problems that Benson is having of like, okay, stop, stop, like you know, it's going to take a couple of years, but please stop. Yeah, um, I wish. I wish there was some sort of moratorium where we couldn't schedule more than three years out, but that's that's for when I'm the college football commissioner. That's actually that. You know, it's funny you'd say that, and and maybe maybe we're gonna hash out some hashtag story content right now. But I think more and more people in the industry are agreeing with you because because of the. Oh, okay. I'll give you a great example. I was I was banging out that Houston story while I was traveling, and I went and looked up to see. So I think I used the phrase, I don't even know if it made it past editing, serendipitous, that the, the scheduling of playing Oklahoma at the one-off at NRG Stadium. Right. I think is the Advocare class. It's a title-sponsored game. It's just like the Chick-fil-A kickoff in Atlanta. And I was expecting, to, to the point that I was trying to make in the story, I thought I was going to say, oh, it was scheduled back in 2011. It was actually, only, it was, it was, the whole thing got done two years ago. The whole thing got done two years ago. They had started the conversations, I think, late in 13, wrapped it up and announced it in 14. That should be the timeline for all these games. How many yeah. times do I have to tell you people, Michigan State, Oregon, I mean, is that the single most impactful non-conference series on the playoff? I think so. I mean, we only had two years of the playoff, but yeah. The winner and, made the playoff each of the last two years. Yeah. And, and they knocked that schedule, they knocked that agreement out. Once the playoff structure had been announced, I believe, they went to each other and said, hey, we have a shared interest here. We're on equal footing. Let's make this happen. And, I mean, yeah, God, those are the best, right? October playing, September playing. I mean, that's that's what we want. Um, and so you get a ton of this, like, uh, what is it, uh, Oklahoma, Ohio State. I'd have to go back and again, but, but, you know, let's see this. Let's see if I'm wrong here. But I think that one was also conceived – once the playoff model was known. Oh, and Oklahoma especially has been pretty vocal. I remember Stoops mentioning that at Big 12 Media Days of, you know, we know regardless. It was like, Bill, it was kind of funny. You may appreciate this coming from the Oklahoma area. It was like he was making the John Calipari quote about the SEC basketball, like like how crappy it is on the whole, but, but you're also Kentucky, so you have to, like, insulate against that. He was almost making that quote about the Big 12 relative to the playoff. Uh, announced series. Let's see when that one was done. Yeah, that one's been scheduled for a while, I think. Yeah, I did too. I'm trying to find the exact one. Oh, he does a good job of, uh, yeah, the Houston thing was a, was a one-off, but they do a good job of setting up, like, big home-and-homes like Florida State and Tennessee and Ohio State. They've got a bunch lined up here. Um, and that's fine. I mean, that's those are good games, but you don't have to schedule those 10 years out. You know, <laughs> there can be windows. Okay, super quick Googling looks like it was it was announced four or five years ago. So it's um, it's hard to it's hard to say that that was in direct relation. Those that's kind of the, more of the old model. But I'm super happy with it, right? Like, I mean, aside from. Well, no, I guess that's probably the biggest, most heavyweight game we have in college football in the first month that isn't a conference game. So, well, yeah, but we got a lot of them. I mean, they've done a good job of making a lot of um, of potentially entertaining non-conference games this year, and that's good. I, you know, as 
kind of figuring that would be one of the roles that TV would play here. And, and, you know, if, 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 if teams were kind of skewing too far in the, in the cupcake direction that ESPN would help to arrange some of these games, I, I thought that would actually happen a little more TVs, obviously with, with the networks, the conference networks that's led to nine game schedules and more of those types of, of battles. Um, and I realize I'm like the only person in the world who doesn't like nine game conference schedules, but uh, you know, o- overall, I think TV's had a healthy role to play there. It's just, you still, <laughs> you know, number one, those cupcake games are kind of circle of life kind of situations where that, that's the one area where there is a little bit of revenue sharing in the sport uh, because the big schools pay the small schools to get their butts kicked. Um, but the other part of those games that I think we underestimate is, you know, we all, we always commend really tough schedules but you go five and seven with the be- the toughest schedule in the country, and your fans don't like tough schedules anymore. Um, you, you, need, you need those cupcake games to be to to get above the the bowl eligibility line too. The fun thing would be if you stripped off all need for those for those group of five schools to to get the paycheck game, and you matched off of you, you match them off in, in as many ways possible. Western Michigan and Georgia Southern are, are they have the second of a two game series this year. If you built those out. Yeah, and Boise's done done a good job of that too. They're yeah. like Toledo and Lafayette and talk about interesting scheduling. Now, I don't know if that would dilute some because a lot of those teams will sometimes face each other in those those pre-Christmas bowls, but I don't think anyone cares about worrying about those bowls, but it would be really interesting to see how schedules shake out and records and how many bowl eligible teams you get if you almost treated it like a basketball like a, you know, the Big East ACC challenge, that kind of thing. Right. Um also, it would make for much more interesting football content, and you could put those games on Thursday or Friday night. But alas, that would make just a painful amount of sense. Right. I mean, that's what kind of what we were saying last week with the the Champions League idea, where you know the top two from each mid major merge and play each other in nine, like nine game schedules or whatever, and you've got a Friday night showcase each week. Yeah, and and if you're listening to this and you're a Florida State fan, or you know if you're an Alabama fan, like I'm not. The, my my advocacy personally only goes so far. If you show me a trend, and I, for instance, I really stopped complaining about neutral sites ruining the spirit of college football because they're helping the product so much. You know, like I get no enjoyment of being in the parking lot in Arlington, Texas, but we're getting Alabama USC out of that, and we're and you know people say, well, move it on campus. Totally agree with you. What I'm telling you now, as I go through my journey as a sports writer. And I meet more and more important people who tell me more and more important things. Alabama, USC, just it doesn't happen one in Tuscaloosa and one in Los Angeles. God, I know we all wish it would, but it's just not the reality of the, of the sport right now. The amount of money that's handed to those people to go to those neutral sites and talk about how great, you know, Chick Fil A or Cowboy Stadium, whatever the hell it is, it's just it's so disproportionate to an on-campus series. Although I do think Auburn and Clemson are going to schedule each other until the end of time because they might be the same college. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, it's kind of a better-than-nothing situation. There. Yeah, home-and-home home would be perfect, but it's still better that they're playing than not playing. Yep. Um, so, by the way, that, I guess that was the longest intro segment in the world. Um, but, we're supposed to start using a, uh, an intro, like an intro piece on this. So uh, if, you haven't, if you haven't figured it out yet, this is a podcast named Play Nobody. It's our fabulous uh, college football marriage of numbers and words. Uh, he's Bill Connolly. I'm Stephen Godfrey. Um, Bill, where are you in the in the world in the in the trek to the summit? How far? How far are we in the SEC yet? 
Uh, we are not. Uh, this is the last week of the Big Ten because Thank of traveling. Be- but you're north of the you're north of the ass end, right? <laughs> the giant ass end. Yes. Uh, did Michigan State on Monday? Michigan today. Ohio State tomorrow. Big Ten power rankings on Thursday, and then on Monday, Kentucky, the ass end of the SEC. Nice. So there's always an ass end to look at. Um, so so spoiler alert: Kentucky is the 14th best team in the Southeastern Conference. Is well, it was right? last year. That's the that's the, what I go by for these previews. It's last year's order. Gonna go ahead and say that's a pretty solid bet for 2016. Yeah, they've they've got a little something to prove. Although now that I've set up the previews for next week, uh, South Carolina might be able to compete for that. Ooh, but I they, forgot. I can I change my vote? Can I can I uh, revise my snarkiness? Yeah, I'm, let's go South Carolina. Yeah, I, I mean, it's. <laughs> I realize we're, we're kind of jumping ahead here by talking about the SEC, but I guess next week we're all AAC, so we won't have much of a of a chance. But, no, when I was setting up those previews, it kind of it kind of hit me how little Spurrier left Muschamp with. Um, you know, they, they had a decent passing game last year, and a lot of that was Pharaoh Cooper. He's gone. The, the tight end, the, whose name I'm blanking on, he's gone. Uh, Brandon Wiles is gone. The quarterbacks, they have a lot of quarterbacks, but, um, I mean, the offensive line could be okay. The skill positions are a big question mark. The defense is an enormous question mark. Um, Kentucky was really, really disappointing uh, last year. They, they really fell off the course last year, and now they have to kind of go to, to get back, and, and maybe they can do that. Maybe they've got the, the offensive weapons to do that. I love Stanley. Uh, I love Boom Williams, obviously, but, um, but their defense is – for, for a Mark Stoops defense, their their defense is just abysmal. Like, the only time they really had any sort of traction defensively is when they had a nice pass rush, then those guys left and the defense fell apart again. That's not what we expected to see from Stoops at Kentucky. And and so both of those problem, uh, programs are kind of in trouble right now. And, and you know, I, I've seen, obviously, the bottom four teams in the SEC East, I've seen in just about every possible order so far, but getting yeah. Missouri and Vanderbilt, because Missouri and Vanderbilt at least have defense. Dude, I'll take Missouri and Vanderbilt over South Carolina and Kentucky 10 times out of 10. It was really weird seeing, uh, you know, and I, again, I'm a homer for Missouri, obviously, but it was weird. It was, weird seeing Missouri's name like below them on lists in, in some of the preseason magazines just because they, they have a proven unit and, and neither South Carolina nor Kentucky does at the moment. So no, I think Missouri and I mean, not to get too like uh, cliche, uh, uh, cl- cliche, but obscure and minus facts, which is sort of like a talk radio formula. <laughs> but I mean, I'll throw down, I'll throw down my, my hot take guarantee that Missouri and Vanderbilt probably through solely through virtue of their defense, win games or win a game each that they're not supposed to this year. I think it just works out well, especially with the way Vanderbilt's schedule lays out. Though defensively, yeah, they'll catch somebody. They'll they will bother the hell out of someone to the point where a mistake is made and they can swing a game off of it, unless they are just absolutely atrocious on offense. Well, and, and Missouri was so absolutely atrocious on offense last year that I think people have forgotten that about their good defense. I think that was part of it. Um, they think uh, Odom inherited like a total rebuild uh, when he has half of an awesome team. So um, the offensive line is such an enormous question mark for Missouri that I really I struggle to figure out what my own expectations are. You, typically, I just pre- uh, predict eight wins, and I'm wrong by three games in one direction or the other. <laughs> Um, Let me back up for a second on on the Big Ten. Okay. Just because as we as you and I glanced and sort of jumped in directly into that sweet sweet ass end of the SEC, um, 
which would be on the sweet, sweet, sweet east side. Um, I don't get a lot of questions about the Big Ten as a conference because all the identities are known. So I think it's fair to say that the ACC, there's there's a decided upper, you know, king and queen, two-tiered upper structure. And then there's really interesting dynamic question marks because, like, in the ACC's code, court, uh, case, sorry, I'm having a small seizure, there's Mark Richt, there's Justin Fuente, there's also, like, what's, you know, Larry Fedora being mentioned for jobs. There are interesting storylines in that upper to mid-level. I think the SEC, I, like you just said, first off, you can shake up, you can shake, you've got one Alabama and then two through maybe six or seven total question mark in the West. You have kind of a possibly false king in the East in Tennessee. Those are things that you can sort of, you can really pick at in the off season and put under a microscope. The Big Ten feels the most static. And so you're basically wrapping up at this point. You tell me if I'm wrong, but it's Ohio State, Michigan, all the talk about bullet points. Then there's a certain inevitability of how good Michigan State is. I know a lot about Penn State with that staff. And then, and then we, we know what the rest is. Also, I feel like their ass end is bigger. That's big. Um, I mean, where's the, where's the hay, uh, you know, don't forget about or hey, I found this out to be interesting. I don't feel like that middle class exists right now in, in that league. Well, the interesting part for me is that the middle class that you know when I do my power rankings, I guess on Thursday, um, like I'll I usually try to break teams uh, these conferences into four tiers. I think I might end up doing that with the Big Ten, but in my first kind of go round, setting them all up, the top three were very obvious. Top tier was in whatever order it ends up being, and Michigan, Michigan State, Ohio State. That that's that's easy mm-hmm. the third tier is purdue the second tier then is 10 teams that are only separated by like a couple steps um okay i, I think i like penn state more than a lot of people i have them right now at least I, I have two more days to change my mind but i right now i have them at the top of that giant tier um but you know nebraska lost a lot of really really close games and could easily kind of turn that around this year <laughs> or as i joked in the preview they might even win nine games um, like the coach they fired did every year. Um, that, but I mean, Wisconsin, I think, well, Wisconsin will be Wisconsin top 30 ish team. Again, their schedule is amazingly awful. So they're not going to like win 10 games, but they're still going to be solid and yes. competitive and very Wisconsin. And they're going, then they're going to dis- just completely disappear. Like, like some sort of sustain removal spread, <laughs> That's right. which is what Wisconsin is just gone. Yeah. Was it ever here? I don't know. And then, um, but I, I kind of like Minnesota more than some people. Uh, I obviously don't like Iowa and Northwestern as much as many people, which, you know, I, I've kind of heard about that a few times. Uh, and then Indiana is, is kind of like the, the one-unit team that, you know, I, I think obviously he's trying it again with, uh, with um, the defensive side of the ball, and I really like that he's kind of bringing in the, the, uh, the Ole Miss four two five kind of structure. Um, you know, the defensive coordinator, he got, I'm blanking all of a sudden, but the, the guy who was uh, Ole Miss, like, linebacker's coach and then was at USF last uh, year. Tom Allen. Yeah, Allen. Uh, most generic uh, defensive coordinator name in the world, and I I forget it often. Um, he, by the way, on, if you go to iuhoosiers.com, has the most spectacular football coach profile uh, picture of all time where he's got, like, the, uh, the lenses that, uh, you know, that – 
Hanoi, he's, not yeah. sun, he's not wearing sunglasses, but they're dark. Transitions. Uh, transitions, yeah, where it's like the heat that radiates off his face makes them dark at all times. Um, it's all that hollering. That's they right. They don't actually change because of UV rays. It's just pure hollering. <laughs> but anyway, I like that move a lot. Uh, I don't know if there's enough anywhere near enough talent on the defense to make it work, but they're still going to be interesting because they can outscore teams. Uh, they sucked Michigan into a shootout last year. So, um, but that's, they're all of those teams that I just mentioned. And then, you know, between Maryland, Rutgers and Illinois, all of them having new coaches and decent athleticism, I bet one of them kind of exceeds expectations. All three won't, but uh, I would say at least one of them, probably Maryland's the best, the most well positioned for it. Although they're in the wrong division for it, obviously. I I guess, I guess it's, it's not that the the conference lacks for a particular kind of storyline at the at the top or the bottom or the middle, it's just that I think most people are confident in how they think it's going to shake out. Right, and I don't think that you have that through line in the ACC or the, right. the, or the SEC. They're obvious. That's yeah. yeah. The people, I mean, the, the team people are most interested about is Michigan, and but that's also the team that the people are the most unsure about and are debating the. Is it an 11-win team? Is it a 9-win team? Is it an 8-win team? I don't think you have that fluidity with many other programs. I don't yeah, think anybody's putting an eleven win ceiling on Penn State right now. And no. I don't think anybody's putting a six win floor on Michigan State. No, they're definitely the the top three is pretty clear right now. I do I it is interesting. Um Michigan State, maybe they're the weakest of the three. I'm not completely convinced of that yet because I haven't written finished the Ohio State preview yet. Um, but if they are the weakest of the three, even if they are, they get Ohio State and Michigan at home. Okay, if we agree that Michigan's the top, and obviously not everybody does, but even if we were to agree that Michigan's the best of the three, they have to go at Ohio State and at Michigan State. Do you so, do you reserve the final? Do you reserve the final judgment on on your power rankings until the very last preview's done, or how how close? I guess it depends on which conference we're talking about, but. Do you normally kind of know as you're headed around the bend, or or do you make yourself wait? Well, I mean, last year's rankings are usually the single best predictor of this year's performance as a whole. So, I mean, the fact that I I kind of work in order of last year's rankings kind of gives me a general idea of of hierarchy to begin with. Um, So just the pure order of teams in the preview kind of gives me a general idea. Plus, obviously, you know, I, I, I try to... I almost got out of my way not to hear other people's opinions, but I still hear them. And so, I mean, I kind of have an idea of who's expected to be better or worse or whatever. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I try to reserve my final judgment until I've written. Because, I mean, it's such a comprehensive process of putting uh-huh. the preview together and, and then uh, walking through each position and everything that I, I kind of – I sometimes surprise, get surprised by, wait, I'm, I'm, I'm more down on this team than I thought or I'm more up on this team. Because I was totally in – like. Michigan's a good example. I, I'm finishing that one as we speak. Uh, well, not not as we speak, but today. Type, 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 um, type, 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 type. <laughs> uh, yes, I'm writing about their special teams as I'm speaking at the moment. Um, I, I, there, I was kind of in. I was in on Michigan. Like I, the projections are there. Uh, you know, I, I just I trust Harbaugh so freaking much because yeah, I mean, I, all it takes is a walk through Harbaugh's record to become sold on any team he's coaching. You know, the job he did at consistently improving San Diego, consistently improving Stanford, you know, taking a team, a 49er team that had barely hadn't had a winning record in like nine years and winning like whatever it was, 30, 39, 36 to 39 games in three seasons. Yeah. Um, 
and then he goes to Michigan and immediately, like I, I in last year's preview for Michigan, I said, you know, Harbaugh is pretty much a sure thing, but let's keep the expectations into like, you know, they'll rank in the thirties this year. They, they ranked in the top 10. Now, granted, most of that was because of the first half and they definitely slid over the second half of the season. They didn't slide as much as I think we, we, we think they did in our heads because as the defense was falling apart, the offense was catching fire. But um, that was so far, like I, I have very high expectations for Harbaugh and that was far and away. Like they had a top 10 passing offense with Jake Rudock. I just remember when I like, like I just remember when everybody was, was behind Harbaugh. Those are like those early Stanford years. It was just such a consensus on watching him do something dynamic and fun, and like it. It's I don't, I don't I don't even know if it's all the satellite camp stuff or if it's just the overexposure, but I think it's also secretly like there was such an accessibility to Harbaugh making Stanford relevant and then making them dominant and then making them like oh wow he's really created something that stands on its own is wholly unique even from its own conference or region, and he could do all that sort of although I mean I feel like the product he'll ultimately end up, end up turning them into is very Big Ten in its origin. So I don't think it will, it will look as dynamic as Stanford did relative to the West. It's I don't just, know. He's recruiting a lot of tight ends. <laughs> of course, that's pretty big, too. So. Yeah, that is. Yeah, see? Uh, <laughs> that's, that's, that's what it you're is. You're an only child, Bill. I don't think you'll understand what I'm about to say. It's just that Michigan culture is like when you want to <sighs> – when you're younger or like smaller sibling won't shut up and you put all your weight on them and then you hold them down and you do this thing and every older brother listening will know what I'm talking about where you like kind of crush them a little bit and then you take your hand and you just kind of slap them in the face a little bit like lightly slap them just to annoy them while, while they're being held down that's my like secret dark urge to do to pretty much every Michigan fan that I ever see on the internet or know in real life is it's it's not a it's not a hatred. I have absolutely no like I have no life experience with Michigan essentially. So it's not that. But my God, it's just dial it back two steps, and I think most of the country would be genuinely interested in what you're doing instead of quietly wanting you to like crash and burn at seven and five, which I don't think they're gonna do. That's the problem. <laughs> well, impressions of the fan base aside. Um... What I'm telling you is that sometimes that does inform not the way we cover things, but definitely how I think an initial perception goes. And also you do start measuring out expectation on development relative to that kind of stuff, right? So I think one of the reasons his ascension at Stanford looks so clean is that where was the, like, where was the median? Where was the level of interest before and what were people expecting as they went? Whereas right. here it's like they're talking about a national title this year. He, he made Stanford a power. Stanford was nothing. Stanford was kind of bottoming out as a program. And, and so, I mean, that's where, you know, this is, as, as is always the case, I'm in Chicago for, because of European soccer, so I guess that makes it okay. But um, in European soccer, like, we talk about the, the best managers in the world. Um, the best managers in the world are generally regarded as the guys who always win in Europe on everything. But, like, Pep Guardiola is one of the, the guys regarded as, as amazing coach. He's coached at Barcelona, then he moved to Bayern Munich, and now he's in Manchester City. Um, all the big names, the quote unquote best coaches are just bouncing from world-class job to world-class job, which that, you know, you still have to win among the world-class teams. So that proves something you have to know how to handle the, the ridiculously overpriced players. So there's that, but you know, <laughs> when I'm playing, you know, football manager on my phone, um, 
I, I, I don't, you know, sign up to for Manchester United. I try to take like, you know, Sheffield Wednesday or a fourth tier team and and raise them up. That's a lot more fun to me. And I wish some I wish some world class manager would do that. Like take a second tier English team just to kind of prove like I really am a badass coach and I can I can win with anybody, not just the teams that were already awesome before I got there. Harbaugh that Harbaugh started at the University of San Diego. Uh-huh. And won immediately at the University of San Diego, or, or almost immediately. Then he goes quick to quick clarification: the University of San Diego, not San Diego State. Correct. And then he goes to Stanford. It took him a couple of years at Stanford, but even while he was kind of laying the groundwork and, and, and struggling a little bit, they beat USC in like the the you know biggest upset of in Pac-10 history, pretty much. Um, and, but and, and then from that point forward, he just he he got it and and. As like his weirdness almost throws us off the scent of how incredible a coach he's been. So I mean that's I, I'm sold. Like that's I, when I walked through the the Michigan preview, I kind of came up with a few more question marks than I expected to come up with. Um, you know, obviously we don't know about quarterback. But again, he he created a top ten passing offense with Jake Rudock, so I assume the passing game is going to be fine. But we don't know it until we see it. Uh, the running game has no big plays in it at all, or didn't last year. Uh, this guy Ty Isaac, who was like the fourth running back last year, he was the only one with any sort of explosiveness. If he's reliable enough to take on a bigger role, that might be really good. Um, but then on defense, they have like they lost all their linebackers. Uh, their defensive line talent is incredible, but it took two injuries to for that to just create a complete implosion in that or two, two major injuries, at least, to, to make that line implode. And suddenly they couldn't stop the run in November. Um, so, I mean, yeah, they got Rashawn Gary. They've got a lot of talent there, but we don't know if they have any better depth than they had last year. So, I mean, there, there are absolutely questions here, but I just end up – I kind of hate that Harbaugh's at Michigan because it makes it seem like I'm just, you know, well, it's Michigan, they'll be fine. It's not Michigan, it's Harbaugh. I trust the hell out of Jim Harbaugh, and I assume he'll he'll create like a top ten or fifteen. <sighs> I just object to your football manager metaphor and think that laying on someone and slapping them in the face is better. But uh, that's fine. We can agree to disagree. You know, that's why we make a good team. Also, the uh, I think what you were you were getting at is the old argument, which in I've heard West Virginia fans and SEC fans say this: like, what if Nick Saban went home? What if yeah. Nick Saban went back to West Virginia tomorrow and just decided we're going to start fresh here? Like, dude, is that a national title ceiling? I, I I don't have an answer. I'm just that's that's been a debate for years. Like, what if the best coach went went to their like? What if Nick Saban goes home and then Bill Snyder takes over for him at Alabama? Well, I mean, God, I think that I think at this point that is just fantasy broadcast. I mean, wow. Well, I, think, I think you just killed an Alabama fan, <laughs> like dead. But I mean, yeah, there's the, I mean, because being a good coach requires so many different things. Like you could almost make, you can make the case that nobody has them all. Like Bill Snyder wouldn't care enough about recruiting to make Alabama. Yeah, just every, everything about combining Bill Snyder and Alabama just left me sort of stuttering. <laughs> but I mean, there's so many. You broke me, robot. He, he um, you know, there, there are the coaches that are, are, are kind of the, the, you know, take even amounts of talent and figure out ways to create advantage. And then there are the coaches who just create massive talent advantages and lean on you and slap you in the face a lot. Um, yes. And, and so, yeah, I mean, maybe, right, like maybe a Pep Guardiola wouldn't be able to do as much about uh, at, at, at a third-tier club because he's just, he's, he's not used to maximizing very really mediocre talent uh maybe he'd be amazing but uh you know those are the things like those little thought experiments are kind of fun because 
We'll never well, find it. it actually it leads me to another topic, which is I think great coaches, truly great coaches, surpass any of the any of the the, the settings that they come into. I know the words of like a, a difficulty setting on a video game. If you were to go into like a, a program that has no resources or achieve, they dynamic coaches over overcome that. It's rare, but they like it's rare to find that level of coaches. But they do right. We have all the faith in the world that if you put Nick Saban at, at ULM, do they win a national title? No, but they're going to be damn good eventually, yeah. right? No, yeah, Nick Saban is, uh, yeah, he's he's quite obviously on that Harbaugh level for me. It's, it should probably right. be called the Saban level. But what's funny is that in casual conversation, especially almost exclusively off the record with these coaches, and I've seen a bunch in the past week and a half. I've done three media days, one more to go. Talk, you know, text with people. Everything. Conversation is always dominated by what you don't have or what you have to over. Like, I'm not saying they're making excuses when they talk to me or other guys, but coaches are so often fixated with what they don't have or what that or, or something that they have to deal with that they don't want to. That they don't have. It goes back to just a complete and total need of control, every single aspect, stuff you wouldn't even think about. But yet, truly great coaches, they're no less a control freak. Like, you know, Saban especially. It's insane at the, the level at which he wants to control things, including apparently every law enforcement officer in Louisiana. <laughs> but they also find a way to operate at a higher level within their current constraints. Right. And they I mean, don't fixate on that. Right. Co- coaches are going to be control freaks because, it, you know, like we said at the beginning, or, uh, you know, you've got 11 guys on the field who are 18 to 22 years old and they're playing with a pointy ball. Like you're going to try to control absolutely everything else possible because you can't control um, a pointy ball and 18 year old guys. So, um, you know, uh, yeah, a lot of the best c- coaches are going to be the control freak types because they just they can't they have to control everything they possibly can. Yeah. It's uh, it's just very interesting to see which guys stop talking about the constraint and start talking about like how to operate at the maximum level within it. There and also, you know, there's a lot of green grass envy. It's sort of what fuels, I think, even more than the the fan expectation of you know three and out, get it done or else type culture. It's also, I think, the job the job market is fueled more by guys constantly thinking that the grass is greener. There's just a. There are some weird jumps in the last couple of years. That I think are fueled solely by people thinking, "Oh, I'm going to be a better coach, and this we're going to be a more successful staff because this school has, you right. know, 15% more of this and this and this. Be it money, right. facilities, fans, whatever. And I mean, a lot of times, it's just that, that's not a great way to look at things. So yeah, Willie Fritz, I'm really curious about Willie Fritz. Man, it's funny that you said that because you just read my mind. Um, we'll get we'll get to talk to Willie in uh, in in Newport, and then. Um, Willie's name came up a couple times yesterday because I met with um, multiple people in the Sun Belt who were talking about his departure as well as Tyson Summers, the new head coach of Georgia Southern. Um, you know, Tyson was nothing but complimentary and was actually telling me that they feel like the structurally their offense won't change too, too much. Um, it's better just, freaking not. Yeah, it's, we'll do my Georgia Southern uh, entire episode podcast at a later date. Um, <laughs> or we can just pencil it in and make it once monthly. Um uh, we did talk about why you're in Chicago. It has absolutely nothing to do with college football. If you want to try and find a bridge in, this is your platform. Give I'm me a good college football. Give, give me a good college football analogy as to why you're in Chicago. Um, <laughs> well, I don't even know a good college football. 
So, so basically, I'm here because uh, my Euro- this is my annual European soccer trip uh, to the foreign lands of Chicago, Illinois. Uh, Bayern and AC Milan are playing uh, whatever they call this, the International Champions Cup or some sort. It's a friendly at Soldier Field on Wednesday night. Um, and being that Bayern treats me better than any college football uh, program does or has, at least, uh, I've got an interview set up for tomorrow or Wednesday. Yeah, today's Tuesday. Um, man, I've tra- I've been traveling one day and I'm already off. I can't imagine 15. Um, I've got an interview for Wednesday. We're going to write a, a kind of a soccer feature, a feature that'll go up late in, in August, right around the time that all of our college football stuff is going up. Um, and so that's basically it. I, I, I'm here to cover, uh, to write a feature about a Bayern Munich player that I am... I don't. I think I could mention it, but I'm having a lot of more fun like keeping it a secret, um, and that's it. And then as soon as I get done, back from Chicago, I, I, not that I'm actually taking the college football hat off at any time because I'm continuing to write these previews while I'm I'm traveling, right? But, the, but I'll it'll be only I'll be only wearing one hat from that point forward. Uh, meanwhile, I've got seven chapters left in the book. That's the other thing I've got going at the moment. I'm currently. <laughs> Uh, trying to hammer out the 99 Virginia Tech chapter, which thank you to everybody. Oh, one of my most favorite college football teams. Thank you to everybody who voted for that one. I'm really glad I got to write about that team. This was, that, that was one of the things with this book, like picking 50. Um, when I kind of laid out, I, you know, I, I, I came up with like 200 nominees for these 50 teams and kind of wh- whittled away, whittled away. And I came up like with, here's the team, here are the teams I absolutely need to write about that I really want to write about. And it was like 59. Um, so basically I had to put some of them in a hat and then, you know, one of the Kickstarter prizes was, you know, pay X dollars and you get to vote on what the 50th team will be, um, some of the runners-up were really good, and I would have had fun writing about them, too. 88, Oklahoma State. Um, I can't remember the others that came close. The, the, with the, the reinvented offense with Kevin Wilson and, um, and Randy Walker. But 99, Virginia Tech won the vote, and I'm really happy about that. That's a fun one. I, among other things, I forgot just how comprehensively they beat the ever-living snot out of Syracuse that year. Um, oh, yeah. Because that was, I mean, we remember the ending of 99 Virginia Tech, but like they were halfway through the season. They were up to fourth in the country because they haven't lo- hadn't lost. They hadn't really been challenged yet, but they were Virginia Tech, uh, even though I think they had won a Sugar Bowl by that point. They hadn't, like they were still Virginia Tech. They were still not an, a name and nobody really trusted that they were truly a top five team that year. And then they play like number 12 Syracuse and beat them 62 to nothing. Um I just maintain that Virginia Tech is the reason that gifts were invented. <laughs> okay. Think about just all the think about Virginia Tech in the context of the digital age and how much fun and how how often the internet would explode with that football team if it happened tomorrow. Maybe not because we because we we have that in our collective consciousness now. But the way that Vic was playing, oh, it was just absolutely amazing. Yeah, and I mean, he and the funny thing was, I mean, he was struggling with a reasonable ankle injury like half that season, and he was still doing crazy things. And then, but you also had Corey Moore. You had kind of peak Beamer Ball special teams, uh, and and pick sixes left and right, and they just, I mean, that was um, such an absurdly fun team. That was the the peak of everything that that Beamer was trying to create and would create. I mean, obviously, he kept winning after Vic. Um, yeah. But that was still that was. I have a distinct memory of standing in line to like pick up some kind of takeout at a college, like a, like a chicken place, and and 
a bunch of st- relative strangers, 20, 30 people in this restaurant, like, standing around. I think they were playing West Virginia, and he would just rip off, you know, play after play, and it was just, you, you couldn't not watch. And this was just pre, this was pre-picking this was up your phone and finding out something was going on. It was so organic back then. People yeah. started, yeah. like, naturally tuning into Virginia Tech across the country. Well, in that Virginia, or that West Virginia game, that was, I, I think, who lost? I think that was a Thursday night game, if I remember. Seventeen years ago, <laughs> the Thursday the Thursday night game might have been Clemson. I don't know. I just I'm, I'm only about a third of the way through. But the West Virginia game was one where they like if they win, they're in the top two in the BCS most likely. They're actually yeah. in a spot to play for the national title game, and then they're behind, and then Vic pulls off the most amazing. Last I might have actually been thinking of the, the game in two thousand. It's possible. Yeah, I can't remember. I can't. Be, I can't totally remember because. Um, well, well, two decades I mean, ago, and I'm old. You'll need to, you'll need to read the chapter then. Um, hey, maybe I should buy this book. There you go. <laughs> See, that's how you do it. That's called an institutional plug, Bill. We'll get you there. <laughs> um, Bill, you're in Chicago. You're doing things. Uh, you're doing super important soccer things. I'm about to drive back home to Nashville to see uh, the alleged wife and child that legally I, I think I'm obligated to see once in a while. It's been 16 or 17 days. We got to go, except... You're not ducking out on the challenge this week, buddy, pal. You're going. Uh, you're going straight into the hell that is box score bingo. Blind box score bingo. You ready? I'm ready. Okay. Uh, do you have your your stats in front of you? I do. Do you see one that says black team and green team? I do. All right. There's a black team and a green team. By the way, these these please don't let the colors affect your 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 computations. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay, um, so if you're interested in playing along with us, Blind Box Score Bingo is a game in which you, the fan, find a box score that you think will stump Bill. You take that box score, you strip off any proper nouns, logos, team names, etc., and you send it to me and only me at sgodjr at sbnation.com. Do not CC Bill, uh, because we think he cheats. No, he doesn't. Um, then, actually a lot of you have been doing this lately, so I'm going to add this onto the rules. Give me a good paragraph, at least, as to why you're sending me this. And please, for God's sake, stop sending me Arkansas and Toledo. Um, We're not going to do that one. So a couple weeks ago, I said, hey, stop thinking so much about close scores or or close high scores. That that was a trend for a while. Um, You guys are starting to do some more interesting and dynamic stuff. I kind of picked this one at random because we were running late this morning, but there's a bunch of good ones. We're going to have enough at least to roll through, I think, probably September. But please keep them coming um, because if you send me a better one tomorrow, I'll put that at the front of the line. So there's a black black team and a green team, Bill. Uh, The black team has 26 first downs. The green team has 22. The black team is 5 of 15 on third down and 1 of 2 on fourth down. The green team is 5 of 13 and 1 of 2 on fourth down. The black team had 399 total yards. The green team had 458 total yards. The black team had 264 yards passing. They were 36 of 48 passing. That's 5.5 yards of pass, and they threw four interceptions. Wow. The green team was 387 yards uh, total passing. They were 25 of 36. That's 10.8 yards of pass. And they threw three picks, so seven combined interceptions. Wow. It's going to be a crazy one. The black team, 130, by the way, I like like how I tease it like I don't know the answer. I'm such a dick. Um, The black team has 135 yards rushing. The green team only has 71 yards rushing. 
Uh, the black team of that 135, they had 37 runs, so that's 3.6 yards a clip. That's uh, Let's see, the green team had 34 attempts, so that's 2.1 yards a carry. Uh, black team, nine uh, penalized nine times for 72 yards. The green team penalized 14 times for 78 <laughs> yards. Neither team fumbled. We mentioned the the other turnovers, and then just for just for poops and giggles, uh, black team thirty five minutes forty seconds time of possession, green team twenty three minutes forty five seconds in possession. How do you feel about this one? This is a good one. Um, a lot a lot of lines here where I immediately think you know. Well, first of all, if if I'm immediately assuming this is a blowout one way or the other because of the introduction. But, um, no, so, okay, so the black team, quite a few penalties, but not as many as the other team. But they had, eight, what is that, 85 snaps which uh, in 35 minutes, which means they weren't necessarily moving super quickly, but they were not moving in big chunks, obviously, because those 85 snaps only got 399 yards, which is not very much at all. Um, so... I would have immediately assumed that maybe they were doing pretty well on third downs to to continue to have the ball that much, but five for 15 isn't very impressive. Um, so, yeah, that's a little confusing, especially when you factor in the fact that they turned the ball over four times. Uh, the other side, what is that? You've got 70 snaps for 458 yards, lots of big plays there. Um, obviously, all the, in in the passing game. The running game didn't exist, but they completed 25 passes for 387 yards. Um, I, I'm going to assume, I don't know what I'm going to assume here. Uh, the first downs went to the black team, which does suggest that they were moving the ball, uh, you know, at least maybe more consistently less in less volatile fashion, which makes the four interceptions a little bit more confusing. But if, if this is a blowout, um, and, and you might've just completely turned the tables and given me like a 35 to 34 game. But I would assume that it's the team that had the more snaps and the less penalties uh, and was less reliant on big plays. It, it does seem like most of the time in those situations, uh, the, the more volatile team is either behind or either loses because of the bad plays or is just spending their entire game playing catch up because they screwed up in the first half and the other team is just trying to like run out the clock a little bit. So, so you think the black team won? I, I I guess so, even though despite the massive yards per play disadvantage there. Now, I mean, the, yeah, the, the yards per play being bad and the four interceptions make me very less than confident in saying that, but I'm going to guess the black team won here. Okay. You feel very unsure about this one. What is Correct. it that you need? What do you need more of here? And and is it just because of the seven interception skew? They just it feels like well, it's, right. it's really. Yeah, I don't know what. I, I, well, I mean, obviously, as we've always said, you know, having like the field position, having the finishing drives, those bits would tell me a lot. But um, no, I mean, I, I this is a really good one because it does. Like okay, green team averaged more yards per play. Great, they were more reliant on big plays and they screwed up a lot. But the black team also had more turnovers and. Um, really really just didn't get anywhere running or throwing so it is a pretty tricky one but i guess my i I guess my guess is black team one okay you're wrong you got stumped but this is a really strange one um so we learned something today i won't rub your face in it too too much um dateline atlanta georgia August 29th, 2014. For much of the night, it was tough to watch. Ole Miss hardly looked like the 18th-ranked team in the country, and Boise State in no way resembled the program that used to beat the big boys with such regularity. 
The Rebels finally came around in the fourth quarter, pulling away to beat Boise State 35-13 in a sloppy season opener Thursday. It, yeah, that's, that, there was like a surge in scoring. Like all of a sudden, it, it all fell apart or it all, it all came together for Ole Miss. That's right. Shaking off three first-half interceptions, Bo Wallace threw for 387 yards and four touchdowns. Three of the scores coming on consecutive throws in the fourth quarter. Damn. Uh, the Rebels got the victory before a sparse crowd. Uh, Ole Miss led only 7-6 to six entering the fourth quarter before finishing off Boise State, ruining the debut of new Broncos coach Brian Harson. God, I forgot it was 7-6 to six in the fourth quarter. What a terrible football was, game. Bo Wallace was wretched in the first three quarters of that game. Like That was where he threw his third interception in like the second quarter, and as he's walking back to the sideline, Freeze just flashes. He's holding three fingers up. Like, what the heck? Boise was really, yeah. you know, trying to keep things tight and uh, obviously had no chance of, of doing any damage to that defense, but kind of had them where they wanted them, and then suddenly Ole Miss just completely erupted in the fourth. Um, okay, so we're going we're gonna to chalk this up as an L, buddy. Sorry, yeah, I just call him like fine. I see him. I got a winning record. Uh, <laughs> this blind box where bingo comes from Reed Posey. Reed Posey says, Stephen and Bill, before jumping into my suggestion, I'll go ahead and give my spiel on how great the podcast is. I'm going to skip this, but but Bill and I will just look at it later and kind of revel in it. Take a bath in your compliments. I appreciate that. Um, so uh, I attended this game in 2014 and sat through one of the sloppiest crap fests of a game I've ever personally witnessed, saying a decent bit for an Ole Miss fan, at least for the better part of three quarters. Both starting QBs, shout out to Dr. Bo, threw three first-half interceptions, and the game limped into the fourth quarter with a score of 7-6. to six. Suddenly, however, Ole Miss scored three touchdowns in a matter of less than five minutes to pull out a three-score lead. Boise answers with a TD, which is quickly matched by Ole Miss to push the final score to 35-13. to 13. Despite the final margin of victory being 22 points, the two teams' stats were very similar in several areas and even favored Boise in certain categories. 26, 26 first downs to Boise compared to 22 for Ole Miss. Total yardage difference of only 59 yards in favor of Ole Miss. Four picks by Boise, three to Ole Miss. Similar conversion rates on third and fourth down and almost equal penalty yardage despite Ole Miss being penalized 14 times to Boise's nine. Uh, neither team was remotely great on the ground, although Boise ran for almost double the yardage on only three more attempts. Uh, and then he goes through a couple more, and then he says, The biggest giveaway in the box score seems to be both the yards per pass stat, with Ole Miss throwing for nearly 11 yards, courtesy of very long passes of 30, 31, and 76, while Boise managed a mere 5.5. Uh, he brings up a really good point there, Bill. The, the touchdown passes late in the game skewed the entire, all the right. passing stats as well. Yeah. Um, it, this is this is just a this is just a weird game that I don't know in your in any advanced box score system could be told strictly by numbers. Well, I mean, in the in the end, I mean, the the total yardage thing was the the biggest piece um, of the puzzle. But yeah, I mean, you 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 get a very clear picture of what both teams were trying to do. Boise really yeah. was trying to sit on the ball and and let Ole Miss self destruct with penalties and whatnot and, and interceptions. But in in the end, they they made too many mistakes. Their quarterback, whose name I'm blanking on, all of a sudden, um, uh, he, I don't remember he, who it was that year. Yeah, but he made he made too many mistakes, and then yeah, once the dam broke, it broke, it, it gushed. It it, it was a uh, that fourth quarter. I mean, that was I think that was the first game. Bo Wallace game after we created the the Dr. Bo moniker um, at those SBs in August. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah. Uh, I don't think I mean, he had the job for long. But yeah, no, that, that was the first game after we created the Dr. Bo uh, nickname, I believe. And then he goes out and pulls yeah. off the, most, the ultimate Dr. Bo game. 
So one thing that may, to put this into context for people that aren't Ole Miss fans listening, this was the game that kind of set up another, oh, this is kind of similar to Ole Miss in 2009 where they were so highly rated coming into the season and people started to, oh, they're going to they're gonna eat the curb again. And then they went and beat Alabama about yeah. a month later. So a team that was so, like, so awful, so inconsistent, turnover plagued, tons of penalties, went out and beat Alabama. So yep. that's why this game is even funnier in hindsight. Um, Reed also says, uh, biggest giveaway in the box score seems to be, we already said that. Um, oh, combined with Ole Miss's considerably shorter time of possession, you can probably connect the dots and figure out the explosive plays factor that really separated the two teams. Hopefully it's not a completely dead giveaway on how big of a margin of victory there actually was, though. No, in fact... I think had I not had I not done my song and dance up front about people sending us too many close scores, I don't think that would have informed you at all, Bill. No, probably. I mean, no, it was very clear. One team was trying to lean on efficiency; the other one was getting by on big plays. Um, and until the fourth quarter, it was it was pretty even. All right. Um, good to see Bill get stumped again, just so he doesn't run the score up on us. Um, we got to go. We got things to do. We got we got. Um, you got to go to Chicago and watch. You, you're in Chicago, but you got to watch soccer in Chicago. We got to have. Um, we got to make internet blog sports journalism content. So, um, with that being said, uh, first I've got to go eat a, a big Italian beef sandwich. That's my. Uh, oh, I that's, thought you were going to plug something, but you can you can plug Italian beef sandwiches if you want. Um, okay, uh, we'll be back uh, same time next week. I will. Um, no, wait, it's next week. Yeah. Oh, my God. I don't even know. Okay, you just stand by on the tweeters because I don't even know how we're going to handle <laughs> yeah, we how much AAC content we're going to have. It's just going to be, yeah. my God. We might have, like, awesome. a bunch of small podcasts next week. We'll yeah. see what we end up doing. Yeah, just stay tuned. It's I mean, it's it's Christmas in August in Rhode Island um, for college football. None of that sentence makes sense. Um, but we're, we're excited nonetheless. Uh, Bill, you want to come back and do this next week? Yeah, you do. Absolutely. <laughs>